G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. We are back. Happy New Year. And here in Australia, we celebrated a day uh, earlier than our American friends. We did. That's, uh, I, I, I always love the novelty of that. I, I like to tell my American friends what the weather is like before they get it. <laughs> Well, it's probably nothing like the, uh, the sweltering heat that we get, thankfully. Well, that's even better. Like, I get to tell them it's a, it's, it's a balmy tropical day and it's actually, like, icy and freezing and dark and they hate me. All right, folks, welcome back and Happy New Year to those who observe the conventional calendar and to those who don't, well, uh, g'day. Indeed, and it is good to be back after a short and very... Uh, hot and sticky break here in Western Australia for the uh, festive and New Year season. How did those prawns go at Christmas, Tim? Oh, they were magnificent. And I managed to concoct an absolute ripper of a dipping sauce to go with. I'll tell you what, you just can't beat a good feed of cold cooked prawns and a bit of salad when it's 110 degrees outside and you can just sit around the pool and cool off. How did your Christmas go? Uh, very similar to yours. I uh, had some prawns as well, um, and I did uh, dunk in my brother's pool for a few times, played uh, board games with my nieces and nephews and PlayStation and all the good stuff. But, you know, really Christmas is all about the kids. Us adults just get to experience uh, second-hand joy. Yes, and uh, supervise and look after the sunburn and the bee stings. That was my experience anyway. Let's get into our study. It's been a while since we were in Genesis 2, so... To refresh your memory, we were talking last time about the location of the Garden of Eden. And now we're going to see why that's important, because we're going to look at the role of the man in this passage and how it relates to Eden itself. With that in mind, we have two verses that we're going to be looking at today, one of which we've already read, which was Genesis 2, verse 8. And the other one comes after the description of Eden, and that's verse 15. I'm going to read them both now. I want you to see if you can pick up on anything that stands out as a bit unusual. Here's Genesis 2.8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. In Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. So how come we are getting told twice about God putting the man in the garden? Is it because uh, the first time he put the man in the wrong place? Ah, uh, you know, he's a man probably doesn't listen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, that's um, that's going to be the focus of today's episode. Uh, let's, let's dive in to see if we can find out what the deal is with this apparent repetition. The garden is planted or established, as we saw earlier, or should I say in the east, as we also saw earlier, or should I say... In the east. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm scratching my head here. It's kind of reminding me of Inception or perhaps a glitch in the Matrix. Is that what's, is that what's happening here? There's like a, a, a glitch in the text. It's trippy, right? For, the, for those who came in late or in the West, so to speak, that was episode eight in this season when we found out that the expression in the east actually means earlier in some contexts. And I'm not jumping through hoops again with all the geographical stuff because we've already been through that. And if you just went back and listened to episode eight, then you know all that already and welcome back. Now you know where Eden is. But no, the apparent repetition here between verses eight and 15 is not a glitch or a manuscript error. It's quite deliberate. And we're about to see why. 
God planted or established the garden, which is not the same thing as being placed there by God, as we're about to see. In fact, from our reading of the CSB, it's kind of hard to see that even being placed in the garden in verse 8 is not the same as being placed in the garden in verse 15. Establishing a garden takes time, which you know if you've got a garden of your own, it's a long process. And that's different to the placement of the man, which is a momentary event with ongoing ramifications and significance. Now the players here are of course the Lord God and the man. Nothing new, but we're about to see how they relate and this is absolutely central because this is how you relate to God too. We talked earlier about how the man doesn't just represent God functionally, he's also representative in this text of all of us. So we see in verse 8 that God placed the man he had formed. The word we have there for this placement in Hebrew, it's sum to put or to place. It carries with it the idea that this is a purposeful action. You don't use this word for casually leaving things around or chucking out garbage. There's intent here. And it's often a specially designated placement. A better word might be installation or appointment to a place, position or role because whatever you place in this manner, you do it with intent that it's going to perform some function there. The man has a job to do. Let's consider this now in the context of our wider reading of the chapter, and in particular in light of what we saw in the chapter that came before it. God has made mankind in his image and likeness with the intent that he might have representation throughout the world. This particular man that we find in verse 8 is a particular representative of God, and he has been placed in a particular location to that effect. He has been appointed as God's representative within the particular territory specified here in chapter 2, which is, of course, the land that we have been looking at over the last few weeks, the place that the author calls Eden. And then we find as we go on from verse 8, as we study Eden, that this land is, in fact, the world that the author knew in his time. And again, we talked about that back in episode 8 this season. So after God installs his representative and after we're told the length and the breadth of his place of responsibility, we're told a second time about the placement of this man and this time there is an entirely different emphasis placed on the same event. The first thing to notice in verse 15 is that the man is taken by God. And to be taken in this sense implies that you don't really have much of a choice in the matter. The Hebrew lakak describes a way of being removed from where you were and being carried off to where you're going. And there's no two ways about it. God has the power to do this and he cannot be challenged. He doesn't even tell the man to go. He takes him away from outside the garden, perhaps even outside Eden itself, and puts him in his place. The man is not necessarily there against his will because we have no ink wasted in scripture on what this man wanted or what he thought. That's important because if you think that God inspired the Bible to be his cute little love letter to you, you're going to be disappointed. The ancient worldview is a corporate view. You know the old saying, it takes a village to raise a child? That's not just one special child, that's everyone in the world. They lived in community with one another and they found their identity in their commonalities, not their differences. In their view, individualism was a way to exclude yourself and become an outcast, not some way to find your significance. This story is for all of us. So the author of scripture doesn't care what the man wanted. He's placed in the garden because of what God wanted. And what does God want, I hear you asking. How can we know the will of God? 
Wow, what a wonderful mystery. What an unsearchable truth. I guess we'll never know. Or we could just continue to read scripture and we'll find out. In verse 15, according to the CSB, once again the man is placed in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Delight. But this time he's placed in a position of privilege and luxury. He's placed in an entirely different situation because it's an entirely different kind of placement. This man is not just responsible for a patch of turf, but he is, in fact, the appointed human ruler of the world. God has installed his king and given his spirit to equip him to do the job. And how do we know this? Because this time, when this man is placed in the garden, he is not just physically dropped in the location, he is made to rest. That's the Hebrew yanach there, translated as placed. This man is not resting in the sense of doing nothing. He's placed in control. He's in authority. He has dominion. This is the same concept that we saw when we read about the rest of God on day seven of creation week. To be at rest is to be in a confident and controlling position of authority over the domain. Now, if you're switched on to all this ancient worldview stuff and you know your biblical history, combined with the supernatural worldview of the ancient Near East, you might be thinking to yourself that this sounds like a recipe for disaster. Because no ordinary man can rule the world as the embodiment of any god without becoming a tyrant. And that is exactly the potential that looms in the situation that the text presents to us here. And that's exactly why the author tells us the intent of God behind the placement of the man as ruler of the scriptural world. His job, according to the CSB, is to work it and watch over it. It's actually really difficult to get the sense that the Hebrew is trying to communicate in any English translation. And possibly the closest that I found was in Young's literal translation, which says to serve it and to keep it. But even that one falls a long way short. So, as the Young's translation put it, to serve is fairly close to what we have in the Hebrew because this isn't working the ground like a farmer does to make the ground serve him. This is the work of the man, to serve the land. And the land here is feminine, as it always is. You find this in many languages where objects have gender according to the rules of their grammar. That's just a feature of language. But let's not get carried away with the land being feminine and the man serving the land as if the land was some kind of earth goddess because that would be completely against the intent of the text. We have to remember that this land does not belong to the man. It belongs to God. So again, we must ensure that we disabuse ourselves of the notion that the use of gender in the Semitic language implies some kind of personification or some kind of a double meaning where a feminine entity is the reference. We have this kind of thing in Australian slang too, don't we, Chris? We do. We say, and she'll be right, mate. And by she, we mean it. It's going to be okay. She'll be right. It's not a gender reference at all. Yeah, exactly. Moving on, and to get back to our text, to serve the land is to take responsibility for looking after it and to do what's best for the land. And why would we do that? Because the land does not belong to us. The man did not come first. He was taken and placed in this land. The land produces everything that's good for the man, but not because he works for it. The produce of the land is the gift of God, and serving the land is the responsibility that is given by God. You can see how these work together, but it would be foolish to assume that the man's work is what sustains him. There is a certain reciprocal relationship at work here, rather than a simple action-reaction equation. So that was your Hebrew term, abad, to serve. And the next one is going to remind you of another Hebrew term that many of us know well. The word is shamar. And of course, you've probably figured out by now if you're familiar with the Torah, 
that is related to the word Shema. Shema is the term used in Deuteronomy 6, that famous passage that is actually named after this word, called the Shema. And from 6 verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And so it goes on. Wow, I did the King James thing again. That first word there, hear or listen, should be one that you're familiar with if you're a parent because you understand that what is meant by hear or listen is not just detect the sound that is coming from my mouth, but to listen, to understand, and to follow the instruction that is given. When a child disobeys, the parent doesn't say, you did the wrong thing. They say, you didn't listen to what I said because to listen is to do according to the commandment. Shema means all of that. Take the instruction and do it. It's not enough to just hear the instruction. You have to keep the instruction and follow through into action. Getting back into our text, the word we find in verse 15, shamar means to keep as if to preserve and protect, to guard carefully the land that has been entrusted to the care of the man. And it also means to be obedient. In other words, there is a particular way in which God expects the man to treat this land and he is not free to do as he wishes. He is under the commandment and he now has an obligation to keep it to sustain and to maintain the land. To protect and to serve. Isn't that the uh, motto of the uh, the LAPD? Adam could be a cop. Do you think God wants us to be policemen? I always wanted to be Robocop when a pivotal film was in the 80s. Coming with me. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be super cool, but I don't think that the author of Scripture had law enforcement in mind necessarily. Maybe, I guess, but. I think the primary emphasis here is on maintaining order and continuing to do the work of God in bringing order throughout the world. Kids, stay out of trouble. And since the mechanism by which that is done is representation of God, it would seem that the work of bringing order to the world is that of proclaiming who God is to all of creation so that everyone may know him. And that work is done not only by what we say, but by what we do and how we live. I'd buy that for a dollar. So what we've learned is that the man was not placed in the garden simply to rule it like a tyrant. His dominion is intrinsically connected to his responsibility to obey the command of God in preserving the land and looking after it because it does not belong to the man but to God. This is how we represent God. We do what he does. We bring order to the world around us by taking care of the land we've been entrusted with. And that's not just land, that's everything in it too. The plants, the animals, the people, all of it. Yeah, and that's quite the responsibility when you think about it. And responsibility is something we don't hear a lot of from the pulpit these days. A lot of churches are gospel-focused, which is great for getting people into the family of God. But the next question should be, and you touched on this earlier, Tim, is, okay, but now what? And I think they're realising the magnitude of our task in taking care of God's world that he has made, that's significant, that's huge. Yeah, it is, and you can see how in the absence of basic Hebrew and a grip on the worldview, it would be easy to fall into imperialism and tyranny, you know, conquering the world in the name of God, and unfortunately the world is full of evidence that that approach doesn't work. Not only that, it's counterproductive. And I'll get some pushback on this too from people whose Bible interpretation has conveniently absolved them of any responsibility when it comes to caring for planet Earth. Because for some, the promise of a new heavens and a new earth and the dissolving of the elements in fervent heat and the words of Jesus, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. All of that combines in their minds to say, well, never mind this planet. When Jesus comes back, we're getting a new one. 
It's like that Dennis Leary song from the 90s. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get myself a 1967 Cadillac Eldorado convertible, hot pink, with whale skin hubcaps and all leather cow interior, and big brown baby seal eyes for headlights. Yeah, and I'm going to drive in that baby at 115 miles per hour, get one mile per gallon, sucking down quarter pounder cheeseburgers from McDonald's in the old-fashioned non-biodegradable styrofoam containers. And when I'm done sucking down those greaseball burgers, I'm going to wipe my mouth with the American flag. Then I'm going to toss the styrofoam containers right out the side. And there ain't a beep thing anybody can do about it. You know why? Because we got the bomb. That's why. I think you have uh, just as much fun researching obscure lyrics as you do uh, scripture. (laughs) They don't see that the Apostle Peter spoke of the world before the flood and said that it perished. That's 2 Peter 3.6. These are the same people who are usually pushing for a global flood and they reckon they've got evidence. Well, you tell me, did the world of Noah's day actually perish or did the same world get flooded and recreated? Because if that world, the world that then was, if that world ceased to exist materially, as a literal reading of Peter would have us believe, and by the way, God did actually say that he would destroy the earth in, uh, in Genesis 6, uh, we, we should have no evidence of a great flood in Noah's day, whenever you think that was. None. Uh, this is a new world since then. The old world perished. That's what it says. This planet has never seen a great flood like what Genesis 7 describes. It was just born brand new out of the water in Genesis 8, just like in Genesis 1, uh, according to the logic of literalism. So I'm going to propose a different reading. We still live on the same planet that God created in Genesis 1. There is evidence of a catastrophic flood, as recorded in ancient texts all over the world. And the world of that day, as St. Peter affirms, did also perish because the end of the world was not planetary destruction. It was the end of the evil civilization that dominated the world in that day. We are headed toward another end of the world. Once more, there will be a catastrophic end to this wicked and corrupt civilization. But at the end of it all, This planet will still be here, and it will still be our job as sons of God to take care of it. Why not start now? Why not live this life as though we've already taken hold of eternity? Why not return to the task of Eden today? What about the way that Jesus holds in tension the task of man as displayed in these two verses that we've been looking at? It's a really overused cliche that I would have preferred to avoid because of its connotations in trendy church circles, but to be honest, you can't get away from the phrase servant leadership. I think that is what Jesus Christ exemplified, and it's precisely the point being made by these two renderings of the task of mankind as expressed in Genesis 2. Very well put, as always, Tim, and that's uh, pretty intense and gives us a lot to think about. Um, And it really should change the way that we treat the world and the world around us, not just how we treat people at church, but how we care for the planet. You know, when nobody's looking. I'm not just talking about recycling, but how do we actually care for the planet and the people on it? We could probably all do a bit more in that regard, I'm sure. Well, we're going to leave it there for this week because it's time to jump into some answers for some giant questions. Okay, let's do it. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in the Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. 
love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. So I have a question here from Steve who popped up in a Facebook group with this question. Steve, thanks Steve, he asks, I'm new to this topic and I have a science question. I've been watching a couple of videos and they discuss how the Nephilim created mutated abominations by cross-species breeding, even humans and animals. But according to science, this isn't at least currently possible due to the DNA barrier which prevents such breeding. You can't breed a dog with a cat nor a cow with an elephant. And this is obviously also supported by Scripture in Genesis 1, 20 to 25, where all creatures were created after their kind or species. Kind can only breed with kind. So, Steve asks, how could the Nephilim have circumvented a biological safety device created by God himself? Hmm. All right, so this is a big one because if we come out and say that it's impossible for animals to breed with different animals or with humans, then we open the door for critics of the supernatural view of Genesis 6 who will then say, well, if that's impossible, how did the sons of God breed with human women to create the Nephilim? So maybe we need to address that question first. Now, I actually do go into a great deal of depth on this one in my book, Answers to Giant Questions. The short answer, which doesn't address all of the questions that this issue raises, but will get us close to something relevant for the purposes of this question, comes from the book of 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. I'm reading from the ESV, and this section comes under the heading title, The Resurrection Body. It's verses 35 to 49. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Amen to that. What a wonderful reading. But I wonder if you caught there the major distinction that Paul makes when he speaks of heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. This is verse 40. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. In my book, I refer to glory as a means of describing the kind of powers and abilities that different beings have. And speaking of glory is not the same 
as speaking of bodies, because the body is simply the physical locus through which the glory or the power of the individual is able to be exercised. Or, to steal the words of Father Andrew Stephen Damick, the body is a nexus of potentialities. So there are different bodies for all the different kinds of creatures that God has made, and there are different kinds of glory that each body possesses. We've got to be careful not to mix these up. Different bodies can do different things. Fish can swim, birds can fly, people can invent money and then become slaves to it. You know, whatever you're best at. But uh, different kinds of glory go beyond just the capabilities of the body in which the individual is created. A biblical prophet is just an ordinary guy with a regular human body, but when he receives a special manifestation of the glory of God through the Holy Spirit, he is enabled to do things that an ordinary human cannot do. He's able to commune with God himself. Or to take another example from the biblical world, if we consider an idol that a person makes so that they can worship their God, we see that the idol, whether it be made of stone or wood, does not have any capabilities in its own body. And yet that body can be treated as the locality of a God that is able to manifest and to work through the idol. Even when the body has no ability, it's still able to manifest a form of glory in the power of the deity. And that's why idolatry was forbidden. It's not because it's fake and doesn't work. It's because God wants us to realize that we represent God. So that's why the prohibition on idolatry in Deuteronomy 4 is there in the first place. Let's have a look at it. Again, this is the ESV, Deuteronomy 4, verses 15 to 20. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bowed down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. So, having read that, did you notice the similarity between what we just read in Deuteronomy and what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15? Are you saying that those two passages are connected then? Yeah, Paul's following the pattern here, which was first laid down in Deuteronomy, to talk about all kinds of different created beings and their different kinds of glory. And perhaps we can talk another time about exactly what kinds of different beings Paul understood from this passage in Deuteronomy. Or you could go back to our cosmology series from last season. But for now, all we need to remember is that these are all created differently with unique capabilities and unique powers. You'll have noticed the mention of celestial bodies such as the sun, moon and stars. And I'm sure you've come across in the studies other examples where the same terminology is used to describe divine beings. So what about angels then or divine beings like the sons of God in Genesis 6? In the book of Job, they're called morning stars. When the Bible talks about angels, and we must remember that the sons of God are a similar kind of being, the angels are described just like ordinary men. They don't have wings. They don't glow in the dark. In fact, if we read Genesis 18 and 19, which is the account of Abraham's interaction with three men, one of whom turns out to be God himself, and is then followed by the rescue of Abraham's nephew Lot from the land of Sodom before its destruction, what we find is that the angels appear very human. 
They eat and drink. They're visible and audible. They can touch people. They can influence their environment. They talk about doing ordinary things like sleeping. And They were able to physically lay hold of Lot, pull him back inside the house. And we've got to remember why the angels did that. Lot was under threat because the people of Sodom wished to have sex with these angels, which they obviously believed was possible or they wouldn't have bothered. Whenever angels are described in the Bible, they are consistent with what we find in Genesis 18 and 19, in that the bodies they have appear to have all the same capabilities that ordinary human bodies have. They're eating and they're drinking, they have internal organs, they can digest food. Who's to say their reproductive functions don't work the same as well? There's nothing in all of scripture that says that angels are incapable of ordinary human functions. So, that's bodies. But what about glory? Divine beings have a different kind of glory to what fleshly beings have. They have different powers and abilities. In the story I just referenced, the angels were able to strike people with blindness. They have miraculous powers that we cannot comprehend. This is divine glory. This is the kind of thing that makes the same material body able to do stuff that ordinary humans can't do. It's funny how we accept these things dogmatically when we talk about Jesus, and we say Jesus was fully God and fully man, and Jesus was able to do these miraculous things that ordinary people can't do. And we don't stop to think, hey, ordinary people can't do these things. If Jesus was fully man, then how come he can do them? It's because of divine glory. Glory is the ability to do stuff. It's a kind of power. It doesn't rely on mechanical means like muscles. Look at demon-possessed people. How is it that they have this amazing physical strength which defies the limits of their physical bodies? It makes sense now that you explain it like that. I haven't thought about it before. but uh... yeah, Humans can be glorified by God, and this glorification is often accompanied by spiritual gifts. These superhuman powers are a manifestation of this glory. Divine beings are capable of losing glory, and that is what Jude refers to when he talks about the angels that left their first estate. That's Jude 6. They became chained in darkness, which is a way of talking in concrete terms about the loss of glory. If glory is light and power, then darkness is the absence of that glory, and the chains represent the loss of freedom that comes with a lack of power. I mean, you didn't think they were real physical chains holding angels back, did you? Note that Jude connects the sin of the rebellious sons of God with the sin of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, which would indicate that he is applying consistent thinking to both events in terms of kinds of bodies and kinds of glory that were clearly on display in both situations. You might have noticed, actually, if you took the time to read Genesis 18 and 19, that the three entities entertained by Abraham are actually called men, and we need to think carefully about that terminology. You see, we also have divine beings in Genesis 6, connected to language about the wickedness of man. There's actually a really good reason why we should consider this kind of language as being technical terminology for embodied persons. And that means that these messengers from God who accompanied God himself in Genesis 18 and 19 were not just entities that appeared human. They were not just some kind of airy-fairy apparitions with human-like appearance. They were not pretending to be human. These were divine beings manifest in human form and retaining their divine glory. Scripturally speaking, we have no reason to deny the ability of divine beings to procreate with humans on earth. That's what the scripture says in plain text to explain the origin of the Nephilim. And it's made even clearer when we consider that the embodiment of these divine beings was a human form rather than human-like. But I've really got to go to some pains here to explain what I mean when I say that these angels had a human form. 
The ability to take a human form does not make one ontologically human. We have a human form, but that's part of who we are or what we are. When a divine being assumes a human form, they can do that because it's an expression of their divine glory. They are not human in their natural state, and that's why the incarnation of Jesus Christ is unique. Because only Jesus Christ is able to bridge the gap between God and man and actually be fully man, fully God. When the rebellious sons of God assumed human form, they lost their divine glory. And although some humans have experienced different degrees of divine glory, not one has fully attained it yet. Of course, this is the hope of believers that in Jesus Christ we will eventually attain it and be truly, fully and permanently sons of God. Yeah, and that, that makes a bit more sense. Uh, I wasn't sure where you're going uh, with all that, which is often the case, but I see you uh, made, a, made, made complete sense, as you always do. Um, and certainly, you know, it makes sense using all that glorification language that you mentioned in the New Testament as well. It's another matter entirely for the creation of cross-species hybrids between different animals or between humans and animals. Now we're going to get a bit closer to the point of the question that Steve raised. To get started on thinking about this kind of hybridization, we should examine the texts that are usually referred to in defense of this idea. And starting with the Bible, in the context of the Nephilim, we find our first scripture in Genesis 6. Again, reading from the ESV, and this is chapter 6 from verse 9 through 13. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Okay, so what should be clear from this passage is that in verse 12 it says, All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And if you're already thinking about the corruption of flesh as some kind of genetic tampering, DNA-altering, hybrid-creating kind of corruption, at the hands of the rebellious sons of God, or indeed of the Nephilim themselves, then this kind of sounds like it fits the bill. But we have one problem with that interpretation, and that is that verse 12 is bookended by references to violence, and it's very clear that the context of verse 12 is one of God's displeasure at the violence that he observed on the earth. Let's read it again, this time just verses 11 to 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So the problem we have here is one of violence against God's creation. But we still have some arguments from those who see the term corrupt there and the possibility that the phrase their way could be a euphemistic term for reproduction. And they might even argue that violence itself could be understood as a violation of natural principles rather than harm caused through aggression. So I guess it's worth pointing out that the idea of corruption has many different facets but boils down to basically what amounts to impurity. And corruption or impurity comes in many forms, most of which do not necessitate any kind of connection to genetics or reproduction. Something can be corrupt in many different ways, but even if you say that the mention of corruption gives us even the possibility that this is 
genetic tampering or some kind of sexual transgression, you still have to show how the rest of the text supports it. Quite frankly, it doesn't. God doesn't seem to have a problem with it. He's concerned only with violence in the text as we just read and the inclination of people toward evil, as stated earlier in verse 5. So the primary motivator that brought about the flood appears to have been the sexual transgression of the sons of God, which had the result of producing violence that corrupted the whole land. That's very different from suggesting that there was any kind of sexual transgression between any other types of creatures or any kind of genetic manipulation. I'm still humouring the concept of genetic manipulation here because we haven't yet addressed that point, but we'll get there. I should also note that it says that the earth was corrupt. Um, We didn't see the earth being transformed into some kind of different kind of earth either. So far as the immediate context for this claim is concerned, that's a swing and a miss for the theory of genetic or sexual crossbreeding of different species of humans and animals. You just can't get there from the text of Genesis. And you can go through the entire biblical canon and you will not find another word that relates back to what we found here in Genesis 6 in connection to any kind of genetic tampering or mixture. And I use that word mixture quite deliberately because you're going to find it if you're reading the book of Jasher, which means that I use the words biblical canon quite deliberately as well. Here's the quote from Jasher, chapter 4, verse 18. And their judges and rulers went to the daughters of men and took their wives by force from their husbands according to their choice. And the sons of men in those days took from the cattle of the earth, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air, and taught the mixture of animals of one species with the other, in order therewith to provoke the Lord. And God saw the whole earth, and it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon earth, all men and all animals. Now for those not familiar with Jasher, it's a book that is purported to be the very same one referred to uh, twice in Scripture. However, careful analysis has revealed that the book that exists today called Jasher is not that old. In fact, it's very late. And I don't mean first century kind of late. This thing is medieval, which means it's a fake. The original book of Jasher, the one that's referred to in Scripture, has never been found. So that means that this text, which is supposed to be some kind of a commentary on Genesis 6, is entirely fabricated with not even a reliable source text to draw from. But if Jasher does draw from anything, it's probably from the book of Jubilees. We find a couple of references in Jubilees which offer some commentary on the events of Genesis 6. Let's look at them. Jubilees 5, verses 1 to 2. And it came to pass when the children of men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the angels of God saw them on a certain year of this jubilee, that they were beautiful to look upon, and they took themselves wives of all whom they chose, and they bare unto them sons, and they were giants. And lawlessness increased on the earth, and all flesh corrupted its way. Alike men and cattle and beasts and birds and everything that walketh on the earth, all of them corrupted their ways and their orders, and they began to devour each other. And lawlessness increased on the earth, and every imagination of the thoughts of all men was thus evil continually. Jubilees chapter 7, verses 22 to 25. 
and they begat sons, the Naphidim, which is a variant of Nephilim, and they were all unlike, and they devoured one another, and the giants slew the Naphil, and the Naphil slew the Elio, and the Elio mankind, and one man another. And everyone sold himself to work iniquity and to shed much blood, and the earth was filled with iniquity. And after this they sinned against the beasts and birds, and all that moveth and walketh on the earth, and much blood was shed on the earth, and every imagination and desire of men imagined vanity and evil continually. And the Lord destroyed everything from off the face of the earth because of the wickedness of their deeds. And because of the blood which they had shed in the midst of the earth, he destroyed everything. So what we've got here again is a manipulation of the text of Genesis 6 with some extra details added. And some of those added details we can find if we trace them back to the source material behind Jubilees, which is, you may have guessed, the book of First Enoch. So here is the text of First Enoch, chapter 7, verses 11 to 15. And the women conceiving brought forth giants, whose stature was each three hundred cubits. These devoured all which the labor of men produced until it became impossible to feed them. When they turned themselves against men in order to devour them, and began to injure birds, beasts, reptiles, and fishes, to eat their flesh one after another, and to drink their blood, then the earth reproved the unrighteous. Okay, so... Now we have the earliest text in which Genesis 6 is used as the basis to describe sins against animals in specific detail, and we find that it is eating the animals that is considered to be the sin that is committed against them. We worked our way back from Jasher to Jubilees to First Enoch, and the further back we go toward the original context of these events, the less we see evidence of genetic tampering of any sort. In fact, as soon as you leave Jasher, there's not even a hint that that kind of interpretation is even possible, given the context provided. What we have being done to these animals, according to the proof text provided, is, at best, the eating of animals, and at worst, some violence committed against them. But there's absolutely no way that you can arrive at something like crossbreeding, gene splicing, some kind of black magic, or sophisticated DNA tampering, or anything even approaching that. You could get breeding mules out of the book of Jasher, but that's about it. Never mind the artificial creation of chimeras. And I don't know if you noticed this, but when you read Jasher, the supernatural elements of the story have actually been stripped out of it completely. You don't have the sons of God. You don't have the giants. These are just ordinary people. According to this, they're judges and rulers. Just ordinary people. Sons of men, as it says. The supernatural element is completely gone. And all we have left is bad people doing bad stuff. So how anyone managed to arrive at the idea that this verse in Jasher somehow refers to the forbidden technologies of a master celestial race can be nothing more than eisegesis, reading into the text what we want to see in it because it just isn't there. It wasn't there in the original sources. It wasn't there in the commentaries on those sources. It wasn't there in the later elaborations on the commentaries on the sources. And it's certainly not there in the rabbinic period forgery that's claimed to be an original source. This whole thing is bogus. It's science fiction. But don't misunderstand me here. I'm not claiming that the medieval book of Jasher is science fiction. Let's not forget that the rabbinic period is anti-Christian Judaism in full swing. The supernatural view of Genesis 6 could not be further from the intent of the author of Jasher. 
the absolute last thing that this author had in mind was anything approaching some kind of supernatural abuse of animals. So if he has anything to say at all about what's going on between different types of animals here, it really can't be anything more malevolent than simply producing mules. And according to Torah, that is an affront to God. That's Leviticus 19.19. So it doesn't take anything supernatural to upset God. These guys are just breaking the rules. So where does all the crossbreeding, genetic manipulation, genome editing come from? It's science fiction. In the minds of occult-obsessed interpreters who can't translate from original languages correctly and can't think outside of their 20th century worldview. These are the ideas of guys like Zechariah Sitchin. It doesn't come from the source material. So it has no place in your Bible study. So what do we do with stuff like the depictions of creatures like the Apkalu? The Apkalu were the divine beings, or partly divine, who taught culture and civilization to the ancient Mesopotamians before the flood, later returning after the flood to empower the kings to maintain that knowledge. And the reason they are depicted as sort of men dressed like fish is exactly because they are found on either side of the flood. The logic is to survive in water, you must have the attributes of a sea creature. Remember from previous episodes how we talked about sea creatures? And therefore, a visual representation of that would make these entities fish-like. So they're not actually part man, part fish creatures. Instead, they are divine entities who appear in human form but have the power to endure the deluge and to go to the place where the power of divine entities comes from, the great deep. Wearing the skin of an animal is to put on its power, and that's why they're depicted like that, in order to get all that imagery in a single thought. They wouldn't have actually been dressed like a fish. It's the same reason why we've become used to seeing angels depicted as having wings. According to the Bible, they actually don't have wings, but how do we describe their ability to go to the inaccessible heavenly realm, which we speak of in concrete terms as though it were up in the sky? I mean, that would require the ability to fly there, and if you're going to depict the ability to fly, you, you just put wings on it. So what about satyrs, things like that, things that are actually mentioned in the Bible? Well, I guess the first thing I want to ask about those is if I was standing there looking at the thing described, this half-man, half-goat thing, what, what would I see? Because if I saw one of the Apkalu, I'm quite sure he wouldn't look like a dude wearing a fish suit. But if I saw a centaur or a satyr or a siren, is that going to be the same deal? And that leads me to a conclusion that I really can't avoid, which is I don't know. Because if an angel or other divine being can appear in a form that is human on a material level, there's nothing to say that the same angel could not appear in some other physical form. Perhaps even a hybrid form. I haven't got enough data to be able to rule that out. But that still doesn't warrant jumping to the conclusion that any of this is the result of some kind of science fiction fantasy DNA tampering. People keep saying things like, well, science is doing that kind of thing now with gene science. You know, I've seen Jurassic Park, and the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun, so it has to have been done before. And every time someone says something like that, I want to slap my forehead so hard that it goes through the back of my skull. You want to say there's nothing new under the sun? Fine, start digging a hole and see how deep you have to dig before you find an iPhone 12 in the hand of a dinosaur. Or stop abusing scripture. That's not what it means. It's not about technology. And since I mentioned dinosaurs, if you have to appeal to this crazy DNA tampering idea to explain the presence of dinosaurs in the fossil record, 
maybe it's time you let go of a fundamentalist literalist theory of origins and exchanged it for one that's biblically sound and has no problem with the existence of dinosaurs. It takes a lot of stress out of explaining the natural world. I'm sorry about the cynicism. It's just this kind of thing is becoming far too common. And it's all in the name of an anti-intellectual pushback against the truth of the real world that does not conform to a biblically inaccurate worldview. You've got to stop and think. If God made the world and the Bible, then the two have to be compatible because otherwise God has contradicted himself. So if your view of the Bible and your view of the real world don't align, then you've got a problem somewhere. And the problem's with you, not with the real world and not with the Bible. Anyway, I should probably mention that this response to Steve's question was not a personal thing towards Steve, and I'm not assuming to know how his worldview and his particular perspectives on things play out. So, Steve, if you're listening, I hope you understand that my little rant there is not personally directed, but I hope that this answer to your question has provided some clarity and been helpful, and I'm looking forward to tackling more giant questions when we come back next week. Indeed, and so am I. So that's a wrap for now. And as you said, we will be back next week. And what are we going to be looking at then, Tim? Next week, we're going to go back to our exploration of the trees in the Garden of Eden, and we're going to talk about what it could be like to eat their fruit. That only sounds boring if you haven't been following the discussion so far. For those of you who have been listening to the podcast over the last month or so, this should be very exciting. So stick around. It's going to get weird, and it's going to be fun. That sounds like a good description of uh, both you and me. So from... uh two individuals who are both weird and fun. Thanks for listening and see you next time. See you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. You know what, I don't think the Robocop quotes, entertaining as they are, are adding any value to this very deep and meaningful discussion. Not even a dollar? Maybe 80 cents, but that's my final offer. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. (coughs) Excuse me. Is that a fair ball? You haven't been mutating with cats, have you?